Get ready to step into scripture with Tina. Hey everyone, my name is Tina Wilson. I am a pastor's wife and a mom of seven, and alongside my husband, Matt, I've committed my life to serving King Jesus as a church planter, a Bible teacher, an author, and an advocate for all-in family ministry. I am passionate about making Christ and His church famous, and I want to welcome you to Step Into Scripture. I'm also passionate about helping people connect with God's Word, reading it all the way through beginning to end, and that's the premise of this podcast. Here in Season 1, my friend Stacy and I are taking on objections that we have heard from women about why they don't need to, don't have to, don't want to read the entire Bible. They just are looking for a different method of Bible study. So far in this season, here's the objections that we've taken on in our past episodes. It's an impossible feat to read and understand the whole thing. I don't have time to read it. I prefer topical studies over reading the whole text. It seems monotonous or irrelevant. It was written by man. It's filled with contradictions. I've already read it. So these are things that we've already talked about in this podcast. And if you've missed those episodes, I hope that you will go back and you'll watch those. We're pulling these objections from a poll that we did of a large group of women in our church. And so we are answering objections that they shared with us that they had heard or maybe even believed in their own hearts. Mm-hmm. So the objection that we're going to take on today, Stacy, I know is one that you had heard even before we did that poll. So if you don't mind, go ahead and introduce yourself and introduce this objection. Absolutely. So I'm Stacy Vines. I'm thrilled to be a part of this podcast so far. This season has been an absolute joy to step through scripture with all of you and with my sister Tina. Uh, Today, we are going to hit an objection that, yes, I have heard multiple times in many different versions of this, and it is, before I read the whole thing, I just need to know the important stuff first. And uh, I may even, I have even heard it in the, the, the lens of, well, I just need to get the basics down first before I get into the whole Things. So um, I think it's uh, it's a very well worth discussing objection, and um, it's more common than we might even think. So I'm glad it landed in this series. Yeah, me too. So I need to know the important things first. Mm-hmm. Just to, to get us into this, I think it's difficult for us to create some kind of arbitrary ranking system for what is more important and what is less important in Scripture. But we're going to do it Mm -hmm. just for the sake of this episode. So if we're going to do that, if we're going to say what is the most important thing that I would need to know before I start reading the whole thing, I think everyone can probably agree the most important thing is Jesus, Jesus, right? Yes. So Jesus obviously isn't a thing, but he did a thing. Right. And the thing that he did (laughs) is the most important thing. Right. The most important act in the history of humanity, his saving work that he did for us on the cross. And and so we we need to know that mm-hmm. if that's the most important thing. But I would just start to take on this objection before we even open the Bible by saying, I think people know that thing already. Yeah, it's it's general knowledge throughout the world, and and Jesus said it was going to be this gospel mm-hmm. was going to go out to the ends of the earth that Jesus died for our sins on a cross. He was resurrected. He ascended into heaven, and that's where he reigns. And I was reminded of how universally known uh, that truth is and how aware the world is of it. Just this week, uh, we were getting ready to go into our Easter services recently for our church, and I, I assist with our church's social media team, 
And so, you know, leading up to Easter, we run advertisements. We're trying to get our Easter information, our service times, mm-hmm. locations out in front of people. And anytime you run an ad on social media, you're going to attract sure. negative attention because it's going to get thrown on the newsfeed of someone who does not want to see it. So I'm having to monitor this ad and I'm having to delete some comments and and comments to the tune of you Christians worship your sky daddy and his zombie son. Uh-huh. Right. So, you know, total. But what are zombies? Yeah. 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 <laughs> something awful to say about Jesus Christ. And yet, what does it communicate? Mm-hmm. Uh, your sky daddy mm-hmm. and his zombie son. Here's what that communicates. You know that the central truth of Christianity is that Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and ascended into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of the Father reigning over creation. Mm -hmm. So even if you don't accept that, you know that. So I I do think that before we neglect reading Scripture because we need to know the most important things first, we should probably acknowledge that we do know the most important thing. And in fact, most people all over the world have an awareness of the most important thing. Well, our timeline, our actual, the dates that we follow, follow the events of Jesus' life. That's right. So, and, but maybe people, they don't know that that's what indicates our timeline, but we all operate around the events of his life in one way or another. So I agree. I think that's a very valid point to to talk through. Um, You know, I appreciate that they uh, recognize that our Savior is, you know, resurrected yes. and at the right hand of God, our sky daddy and our zombie savior, you know, um, that's one way to, one way to say it, but it's still acknowledging the, the basic central truth. Yeah. Even in mocking, you are acknowledging that I know the central truth of your faith. That's right. Yeah. So if you've been listening to this podcast for any length of time now, you are probably already clued in to something that Tina and I say every single week, which is You cannot detach the Old Testament from the New Testament. Next week, we're actually going to really talk more about that, which I'm excited about uh, that episode. But for this episode, because we are going to take an attempt to look at the most important thing, the basics, we have to all come to the agreement before we get started that the Old Testament and the New Testament go one and the same and we keep them together. We know um, that, you know, you were talking about the basics being Jesus. We know that uh, we are introduced to Jesus, the accounts of his life, right? What we would call the central starting point of our faith. We see that in, in the book of Matthew, the first gospel in the New Testament. But... We, if we're looking for Jesus, we will find him on every single page, even in the Old Testament. And so we just have to train our eye to see him leap up off of the page. And so yes. we're going to try to do that um, at the beginning of this episode to walk through some Old Testament pieces. And we're first going to look at the structure of the Old Testament, and we're going to see how it's it can be broken down into four literary genres. And again, our goal is to train ourselves to see Jesus the central point, the the most important stuff, right, on every page. And we're going to start by doing that. So we're going to look through four different types of literary genres that make up the Old Testament. And so we have first the narrative and the history, right? Yeah. The, the, the accounts and the recollection of God's faithfulness and what he has already done. Uh, we're going to look at the law, God's gift to us to in order to bring humanity and creation into fellowship with him. We'll talk through some prophetic announcements. We'll look at some of those together. You know, what has God said he would do? 
and then done. Um, and then finally, lament, praise, and wisdom. We were talking about this yesterday. These are the human response emotionally and intellectually to the profound realization of God. I love the way you put that. And so we're going to take a look at these genres. So if you're if you're following along and you're writing things down, now would be the time to get something to follow along because we're going to go through several pieces of Scripture because that's the point. We use Scripture. Um, we allow Scripture to speak on its behalf of its validity and its importance and its profound working ability in our lives. And so we're going to dismantle the objection. I need to know the important stuff first by looking at the most important thing right? all through the Bible, all through starting it. in the Old Testament. So Tina's going to kick us off with narrative and history from the book of Genesis. All right. So we are going to start in the book of Genesis, and we're going to just read a few short verses from Genesis chapter 14. And we'll start with verse 17, and we're just going to read right up to 20. So after Abram returned from defeating Ketoleomar and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything." So a key event, a very important thing in understanding God's story, if you're looking for the most important thing, this is going to be an important thing, mm -hmm. is that God's story begins through the family of Abram when he calls him out of Ur in Genesis chapter 12. So Abram responds to God's calling with immediate obedience, and he settles in the land with his nephew Lot living east of him in the plain near Sodom, and some kings come together and attack Lot, and they take him and his family as a prisoner of war, and that's kind of the context leading up to what we just read. So in response, Abram takes his men from his household, and he goes in pursuit of these kings. He rescues, recovers Lot, his people, and his possessions. So Abram is then returning from that victory, and this mysterious character who we just read about in Genesis chapter 14 named Melchizedek comes out to meet him. What we read was Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And then Abram gives him a tenth of all of his spoils. And that's really all that this chapter says about him. It's all that um, is written about him in the whole book of Genesis. But what a lot of what seems mysterious or concealed in the Old Testament, we mm -hmm. find revealed and made clear in the New Testament. Right. So that's where we have to go if we want to learn about this mysterious character, Melchizedek, who randomly shows up in the book of Genesis. It says he was called the king of Salem which is likely the place that later became known as Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And Melchizedek served Abram bread and wine in this short account, which are the same memorials that in the New Testament we see Christ appointing to represent his body and his blood. So the entire chapter of Hebrews 7 in the Old Testament is dedicated to explaining to us how Melchizedek in Genesis is a picture of Christ in his new covenant in the New Testament. Hebrews 7, 3 says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning or end of days, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Why is there no more information about Melchizedek? Because mm -hmm. he was a picture of the mystery that was being built up in Christ that was going to be fulfilled with Christ's coming when the most important thing happened. 
So we still model the foundational truths that we find in this Melchizedek story, the basics, really. When we come together for worship today, we take communion, which involves bread and wine to represent Jesus' body and blood that was broken and spilled out for us, um, modeling what Melchizedek came and presented to Abram in this Genesis account. We also give our tithes, just like Abram did. He gave Melchizedek a tenth of all of his spoils that he had brought back from rescuing Lot in this war, and we model that today by giving 10% of our gross income following that pattern of generosity that was established all the way back in the book of Genesis. Right. And then in Psalms, which Stacy's going to get into later, where we talk about uh, wisdom and poetic Mm -hmm. literature, that genre of Old Testament scripture, we read in Psalm 110 where King David prophesies about the coming Messiah who has not yet arrived yet, but he says this, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm chapter 110 verse 14. And after Jesus came in the book of Hebrews, we find the Hebrew writer explaining that now Jesus Mm -hmm. is our forever high priest, just like Melchizedek was the high priest of God in the book of Genesis. And he says in Hebrews 7.27 that Jesus is now able to save completely those who come to God through him. We have this picture of Melchizedek showing up in this account of Lot being saved and being rescued. And now Jesus comes in the order of Melchizedek, our high priest forever, able to save us all completely. So you want to know the most important things first. And we know the most important thing is the work of Christ, is what Jesus did for us. But that is pictured even in this very early account of narrative and history Just this short story, three verses about a mysterious priest who shows up, serves bread and wine, blesses the family of Abraham, who is going to go on to become the nation of Israel and establish the lineage for the Messiah. And then Abram generously gives him a tenth of his spoils from the rescue that he's just carried out. And I think what is so profound about this as well, so this this objection, I need to know the most important stuff, also likened to I need to just know the basics. When we walk into church, any establishment, you're visiting a church, you're in any type of faith-based organization, many times there is a statement of faith or a creed on the wall. Yeah. And many would look at that and say, okay, that's the basics. But those are dense biblical ideals yeah. that are founded on much on, on a lot of context like the idea of communion. This beautiful thing that we ascribe to every time we assemble. Yeah. But if I were to sit in a position to say, and I have in the past, to say, this is the basics. I take communion because of what I, this is what my church does. But unless you really look at the most important stuff, Jesus, all throughout scripture, right? Melchizedek, only a handful of places we see him. Right. But it leads to an incredibly beautiful act that we get to enter into every single weekend uh, to remember what Jesus did, the most important thing. Yeah, there is theological depth and richness Mm -hmm. even in the basics or the most important thing. Right, and so I think we look at it, we just look at it backward, and and it's not on purpose. Yeah. But I think because we put it on the wall and because we create creeds and we want to just make it known like this is where we stand, we create this concept that these are the basics. This is where you start. 
But I would encourage everyone to start in Genesis yeah, and let those those things build on your foundation so that you own those as your personal pieces in yes. your relationship with Jesus because you see Jesus in those things and not an allegiance to just the establishment that you, yeah. that you are involved in. So I, I just, again, just from the history and the narrative, uh, man, we're already so deep into this thing. Yes. Okay, so we're going to move right along into our next literary uh, genre, which is law. And I like to compare the law to God's gift. Um, yeah. God's gift of grace. Law in the Old Testament, I see as grace in the new. Um, and so in order to go through this, we are going to um, sit for just a second in Numbers um, chapters 3 and 4. Um, and so the book of Exodus um, first established for us um, the priesthood. This was God's necessary provision, right? This gift. And because the, the children of Israel had fallen away from him, he again his idea is to be in fellowship with humanity, in fellowship with what he created. And so he institutes a priesthood, another beautiful institution that we see um, concealed and just barely um, opened, right, in the Old Testament that is wonderfully revealed in the New Testament in all of us. Um, so God initiates this priesthood. Um, and in the book of Exodus, we go through that, and it's where God also gives them the instructions um, in Numbers for the tabernacle and how they will care for and work the tabernacle. And he gives some pretty specific things. And so in the book of Numbers, he reiterates the duties of these priests. And these were also known as the Levitical duties because uh, we see that the line of Levi, um, again, this is a family story that we are following out, right? Yeah. Abraham, it goes down, and then now we are at the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel. One of those sons is Levi, and so we've got one big family wandering in the wilderness, yeah. and God is giving them the gift of the law in order to remain in fellowship with them. He teaches them how to uh, create their city and how to work around the central temple or the central tabernacle that he is giving them the instructions for. And one of those instructions was that the um, the Levite clan, the tribes of the son Levi, or the, the descendants of the son Levi, would be the ones who would um, work the tabernacle. They would be responsible uh, of being priests, of the ones who were allowed to actually touch the coverings and furnishes and the structure pieces of the tabernacle because they would uh, pick it up and move through the wilderness and reassemble it. And they had very specific um, de defined rules that they would follow in order to use this tabernacle. And that was tasked to the Levite family. And within the Levite family, specifically the sons of Aaron, the brother of Moses, they were the ones who would actually be allowed to be the priests who would be the mediators between the people and God. So again, this idea of a mediator who will come and stand in place so that God can dwell among his creation. And so we see the fabric and the footprint being laid here even in the Old Testament in the law, right? This, this gift uh, from God. So now we've got our footprint and our fabric laid for how God will come into fellowship with this family as they're on the move to the promised land. And as we go through all throughout history, 
we see that only certain people were allowed access into this space, right? Only the descendants of Aaron, the sons of Aaron, could participate in this mediation. Others, if they even touched these pieces, would fall dead. Or if they were outside touching the furnaces, they would have to be put to death. But God, that was... That was not his ultimate end goal, right? God wanted fellowship and and communion with all of us and everyone, and his holiness hasn't diminished through the centuries. Even though in seasons when his holiness isn't popular to talk about, it doesn't negate the fact that he is still holy, right? If they touched it, they would die. Um, And so yet although his holiness hasn't diminished, he has made it to where ordinary people like me and you, are able to come into his presence um, and into this fellowship with him. We see in the New Testament, John, who was one of the regular people, a disciple with Jesus, who got to see God in the flesh, in the form of Jesus, he wrote this at the introduction of his gospel in the book of John, chapter 1. We're going to read verses 14 and 18. He says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in close relationship with the Father, has made him known. So even though our unholiness prevents us from coming into the, this, this, this sacred space of God, God flips that and he comes and makes his dwelling among us. That's how the tabernacle and the law were this fabric and footprint for what Jesus would fulfill moving forward. When God's one and only son offered up his own life as a sacrifice for our sins, he purified us, making us all holy. Therefore, we are able to come into this same close relationship with him. And, and moving on even further into the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, 11, and 12, but when Christ came as high priest, just like Tina talked about, as he, when he came as high priest of the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, it is not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. So we see in the law, we're looking for the most important thing, the thing that Jesus did. We see in the Old Testament under the law, God created a provision through the priesthood, through the act of sacrifice for us to have fellowship and a closeness with God through the mediator, the line of Aaron. And then we see Jesus come into a more perfect tabernacle, a temple that now is made up of all of us. And not only has he given us a space to work this tabernacle like the Levites, but not only and not only can we touch it, we can greet at the door, we can sing on the stage, but we are the actual dwelling place. We are the tabernacle where Jesus and where the Spirit of God rests and dwells for eternity. Incredible. So not only is he the perfect high priest in the order of Melchizedek, but he lets us be temple workers just like the Levites. And and for us, when we touch this space now, this most holy place, the holiness has not gone down or gone backward. He has just elevated us into a place where we get to participate. Yes. Again, a, a footprint from the Old Testament, even something in the law that we would miss if we didn't read 
more than just the most important The most important piece. things. Right. Yeah, that's the gospel in the narrative of Genesis. That's the gospel in the law of Exodus and Numbers. Right. And we also find the most important thing, the gospel in the prophetic announcements of the right. Old Testament. And this uh, comprises a large section of Old Testament. We have minor prophet prophets and major prophets. Um, but I want to talk with you about one specific prophetic announcement that we find in the book of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel is an Old Testament prophet who was presenting God's message about Judah's sin and God's restoration. So in one of his prophetic announcements, he uses an allegory about two eagles. Mm -hmm. And if we're looking for the most important thing, we might go, I have no idea what he's even talking about. But when we look for the most important thing on every page, we find it. So I want to just read this with you, this prophetic announcement from the book of Ezekiel, and then we'll unpack it together. It's Ezekiel chapter 17, and we'll start with verses 1 through 10. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, set forth an allegory and tell it to the Israelites as a parable. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. A great eagle with powerful wings, long feathers, and full plumage of varied colors came to Lebanon. Taking hold of the top of a cedar, he broke off its topmost chute and carried it away to a land of merchants where he planted it in a city of traders. He took one of the seedlings of the land and put it in fertile soil. He planted it like a willow by abundant water, and it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine. Its branches turned toward him, but its roots remained under it. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out leafy boughs. But there was another great eagle with powerful wings and full plumage. The vine now sent out its roots toward him from the plot where it was planted and stretched out its branches to him for water. It had been planted in good soil by abundant water, so it would produce branches, bear fruit, and become a splendid vine. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, will it thrive? Will it not be uprooted and stripped of its fruit so that it withers? All its new growth will wither. It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it by the roots. It has been planted, but will it thrive? Will it not wither completely when the east wind strikes it, wither away in the plot where it grew? So if we're looking for the most important thing, this allegory, this riddle is probably not going to jump off the page at us as the most important thing. And yet it is, if we are training ourselves to find the most important thing, the work of Jesus Christ in everything that we read. So this illustration was given by Ezekiel to what God called the rebellious house of Judah, who had not followed his laws and precepts. And Lebanon in the illustration is Jerusalem, their capital city. And we know that because scripture interprets scripture and we can cross-reference Jeremiah twenty-two twenty-three there. So you have this eagle who breaks off and carries away the topmost shoot of this cedar, and that eagle is the king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, who was coming in to conquer the city of Jerusalem. And then King Nebuchadnezzar put another king in place over Judah, but subject to him under Babylonian rule, and that is the seedling that the eagle planted in the fertile soil. Mm -hmm. Now, Zedekiah, this new king that King Nebuchadnezzar put over Judah, made an oath in God's name that he was going to be loyal to Nebuchadnezzar, and yet he rebelled against him anyway, and he turned to another eagle looking for help. And that's what Ezekiel is describing in this 
illustration. That other eagle was Egypt. It was the king of Egypt, and that was not only a rebellion against Nebuchadnezzar, it was also a rebellion against God because God had told the nation in the book of Jeremiah through that prophetic announcement that they needed to just submit and surrender to the besieging Babylonians, and then they would live. God never wanted them to Mm -hmm. go back to Egypt, the nation that had enslaved them and the nation he had delivered them out of centuries before. But they didn't listen. And the whole purpose of this riddle was so that everyone would know that when Zedekiah, this king who Nebuchadnezzar appointed, when he died in Babylon, when this other eagle, Egypt, was not able to help them, then then the whole nation would recognize that God was in control. And that's exactly what happened. King Nebuchadnezzar, after Zedekiah rebelled against him, he gouged out his eyes and he died in Babylon. And he died the last mortal king that ever reigned over Judah. Right. And yet God had not forgotten his promise Mm -hmm. because he had made a promise generations before to King David that David's lineage would never fail to have a descendant on the throne of Judah. So this looked like an end. But when we come to the book of Matthew, we trace out the lineage of the Messiah that comes down to Jesus. And we find that 14 generations after this seedling, Zedekiah, who Nebuchadnezzar put in place, there is a fulfillment that's described in Ezekiel 17, 22. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender shoot sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. Well, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is referred to in that very way in the book of Isaiah, a tender shoot, a root out of dry ground, Isaiah 53, 2. So God said that when he planted this shoot, that it would become a splendid cedar. Verse 23 says, On the mountain heights of Israel I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. And the very best news for us, Mm -hmm. the most important thing that is written on this page comes in the last verse of this 17th chapter of Ezekiel, and it says this, All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it. Now, why is this the most important thing? Well, if you, like us, are a Gentile, you are part of the other trees that are represented in this forest allegory. All the trees of the forest will look and see that I, the Lord God, am in control because he causes us to flourish. The dry trees are able to flourish because he gives us new birth through this topmost shoot that he broke off of the cedar and that he planted on a high and lofty mountain that grows into this great tree. And he says, all of us now can find shade in its branches. Mm -hmm. This is a beautiful prophetic announcement about what God was going to do through one lineage for the whole world. For all of us, he was going to plant a tree that would grow and birds of every kind, Mm -hmm. every nationality would be able to nest and find shelter in its branches. Now, that's a prophetic announcement that seems cryptic and seems like something that's not really important for us to know. But when we find its revelation in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew, it becomes very important because what it says to us is that from the very beginning, 
God deeply loved us and established a plan, planted a shoot that was going to give all of us a place of shelter and safety and salvation. Yeah, absolutely. And lucky for all of us that his branches fill the whole earth. Yes. And we all sit under the shade and eat from the fruit of his branches. And I think it's super interesting. You know, even in the New Testament, Jesus walks up to the unproducing fig tree as he's overlooking Jerusalem, this green tree, and he yeah. withers it. Yeah. Just just nailing it in that he is the one who is that that tender shoot who has grown into this yes. mighty tree with branches that we sit under. Wonderful. And if we're not looking for it, we're not going to find it. So we're going to miss the most important we're thing. We're going to miss the most important thing, the saving works of Jesus Christ and all that God has promised he would do. And so now to move into our fourth and final genre as we go through the entire Bible to find the most important thing, the saving work of Jesus Christ, we come to lament, praise, and wisdom. And I like to look at this as the human response emotionally and intellectually to the revelation of God and the goodness of God. And so we're going to start in the book of Psalm chapter 2 because it is the most quoted Old Testament reference by New Testament writers when they are speaking about Jesus or an application to Jesus. And we're going to look at a couple of examples of New Testament believers, these fathers of the faith um, of the Christian church, where they quote this in times of trouble and persecution and in prayer. And then we're even going to see how Jesus references this in himself because the point when we're looking for the most important thing, especially in this, is that even in writings that are that are of lament or worship, wisdom, and praise, we still see that God has decided what he will do and he will accomplish what he has decided and yeah. set his mind to. So we're going to begin in the book of Psalms, chapter 2. And I'm just going to read the whole chapter so we have the best context. It says, Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The king of the earths set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in heaven's laughs, he who sits in the heavens laughs, and the Lord hold them, holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, "As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, "You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession." You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. So on the surface, this seems like a moment of praise. But this is a very important and dense, again, most quoted Old Testament by New Testament writers in application to Jesus. And we see this um, in one example in the book of Acts in chapter 4, where two of Jesus' disciples, John and Peter, have been arrested for preaching the gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ. So they're arrested. They're continuing to testify boldly. They go back. They're released and go back to the other believers. And here is what they share with the other believers from Acts chapter 4. And we're going to read verses 24 to 28. It says, And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, 
sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and they quote, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predetermined to take place. So even here, these New Testament believers are together praying and they're they're recalling the worship and praise of King David in Psalm chapter two, because they see the fulfillment of the people's plotting and the nations raging against the anointed one, but recognizing what else Psalm chapter two says. Another example we see that Paul shared when he fought, when he carried the gospel Um, In Antioch, on his first missionary journey, we read in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 to 33, he says, We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it is written in the second Psalm, he's recalling here, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Jesus has overcome sin and death. And in doing so, he is established as the king of the universe where all of the nations are his inheritance to the ends of the earth, just as God promised. So just like the Christians in the new, in the, at the launch of the church would have prayed in almost worship, recalling that God's anointed one, exactly what God said would happen. Yeah actually was fulfilled in front of their eyes. Paul shares on the other end of that, that, Jesus has become the reigning king from one end of the earth to the other. And so no enemy can stand against him. And then lastly, in Revelation chapter 19, we learn about a white horse with a rider. The rider is called Faithful and True, which is the name that Jesus gives himself in his letters to the church in the same book, the book of Revelation. And here are the words that we can hear again from Psalm chapter 2, spoken in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. It says, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And here we are. He will rule them with an iron scepter. That's the promise of victory that God gave back when, when King David wrote this down as a form of praise that God would, that not only would God give him the iron scepter to rule, but that he would dash them to pieces being victorious forever. And so uh, even though the battle lines have been drawn, there is no enemy that can thwart the plan and the decided yeah. victory that God has already established. Jesus has overcome sin and death. The, the promise given in Genesis chapter three has been given. He has crushed the head of Satan and he has done it fulfilling all of the things that God spoke and decided all along the way. So one more example of when we're looking for the most important thing, the acts and the works of Jesus Christ, it's on every page in every literary genre that's made up of this one big, beautiful book of God's story and his redemptive plan for all of creation. Yeah, and even just self-contained within this episode, after looking at that Ezekiel 17 account and then hearing you right after that read Psalm chapter 2, I'm going you know, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain, that high and lofty mountain. The tender shoot he planted. Yes, and then that that psalm ends with, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. All All these birds who, who take 
refuge and nest in the branches. That's right. So it, it becomes very clear when you start to learn to look for the most important thing on every page, just in these few accounts we've shared today. Right. When you become aware of that messianic language, then you will find that in order to know the most important thing, you need to read the, the entire thing. thing. Yeah, absolutely. So we've covered a lot in just this one episode, and still we really haven't even skimmed the surface. And I think it lends to the original idea that 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 is presented at this objection. If you want to know the most important things, please don't align them with the most basic things. Yes. Because even though we just went through four literary genres that seem basic. We've read narrative and history. We've all read poetry. We've all read dialogue. We've all read these types of, of works, but there was nothing basic about what we talked about nope. today. Nope. It is. It is theological depth that is pointing us toward the most world-changing thing that has ever happened in the history of humanity. And the good news for us is it's not outside of our grasp. Yes. It is totally understandable and it is something that we can get and digest and own as a part of our faith in Jesus Christ. And it can take our faith from being fluffy to being concrete and sure and firm. That's it. That's it right there. So, guys, thank you so much for walking through all this with us. I would love to keep walking through this with you. My book, Step Into Scripture, that creates these connections and helps us recognize the centrality of Christ all throughout Scripture will be available on Amazon by May the 19th. So please connect with that. If you'd like more information, you can text the word SIS, that's S-I-S, to 855-721-1400. And we look forward to seeing you back here next week as we continue to dismantle objections as to why people think you don't need to read the whole Bible when absolutely you do. Totally do it. So we'll see you back. See ya.